and I invite everyone else to open their Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. If you're using one of the pew Bibles provided for you, you'll find the book of Nehemiah on page 370. We're beginning a new series in the book of Nehemiah today that we will then spend most of the fall walking through this book together. One time I heard someone preaching from Nehemiah and the gentleman preaching from it made this uh, comment in, in the introduction and he said, I'm not sure why God is calling me to preach through Nehemiah because we're not in any kind of a building project. And I thought, oh, that's kind of funny. But I do feel like, therefore, I have to make a disclaimer because we are in the middle of a building project. And so uh, my choice of Nehemiah has nothing to do with that. Uh, But God willing, uh, this coming week, the house next door will be torn down. And uh, we are continuing to make the plans for our own uh, expansion of our Sunday schooling. But Nehemiah was chosen at the beginning of the year. Uh, I'm a couple years into it now where I've just submitted a whole calendar for the year of different things to preach from uh, to the elders uh, to get their consideration, mainly with the goal that uh, if if someone comes to this church over a two-year period, that we would have shown them as much of the scripture as we can. The Old Testament and the New Testament to go through some books quickly and some books uh, to go a little bit slower, but to have as much variety of places that we teach from in the scripture to show people that there is a united story in all the various 66 books that we have in scripture. And so we had just been in the New Testament in the book of Philemon, and so now we come to the Old Testament into Nehemiah. And it has nothing to do with our attempts to build anything. And actually, when we uh, get into the book, you'll see that uh, Nehemiah has nothing to do with any kind of a church building. (laughs) There were other people in Nehemiah's day who were focused on that kind of work. That was not Nehemiah's calling. That wasn't his burden. He had a very different task uh, that he was called to. But this is Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah, and now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting, praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And that's where we'll conclude our reading for today. A great ending is always a new beginning. And that last verse draws us into chapter two, but we'll stop where we are for now. Uh, we receive in our Bibles uh, Nehemiah as a separate book, but originally it was a combined book with Ezra and Nehemiah and put together by the same individual. And so uh, most uh, synagogues today, if they were to open up to this, would have a, a combined Ezra-Nehemiah book. So even starting here in Nehemiah chapter one, we're actually entering into the story uh, halfway. And so just to provide a little bit of context for what we're reading, the nation of Israel had been united under King David and then had its greatest reign as a nation under David's son, Solomon. But after David passed on, the nation broke into two. There was warfare between them, and it was divided between a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And the promises that God had given to them to give them the promised land, that they could be a united nation if they followed him, but also came with it consequences if they rebelled against him and if they did not honor his ways. And so under David, they experienced this initial coming together in Solomon's time in the building of the temple. They had their glory days, if you will. But in those glory days, many of them, and even Solomon himself in his later time in rebellion, did not honor the ways of the Lord and did so many things that God had instructed them not to do in his word. And so before they lost anything politically or militarily, they had lost the heart of their nation. They had lost the spiritual strength that they had enjoyed. And then what happened to them physically was just a, a manifestation of what was already happening to them internally. They could no longer get together. They were no longer one large family worshiping God together. They had competing temples and competing capital cities. And eventually the Northern Kingdom fell in battle to enemies from the north. And so the southern tribe and nation looked at what happened, and they had now this living example to say, we, we can't presume that we're going to be okay. We need to honor the Lord and honor his ways, or the same thing that happened to our brothers and sisters in the north will happen to us. And it was delayed. There was a, a, a gap of time that was different where they maintained their nationality for longer, but eventually they fell as well to the Babylonians. And so both of them, divided, were now conquered. And many of them who were conquered in warfare at that time were then taken captive and moved to completely different countries and made to be either slaves in those countries or, if not slaves, workers and servants who were given completely new names, expected to learn new languages, and expected to start worshiping completely different gods. Because back then, to lose in battle was not just to say, oh, your general was better than ours or you had better weapons than we did, but 
Almost all those nations had different gods, and so to lose in battle was essentially to feel defeated that now not only was this nation superior to our nation, but that their God was superior to our God. And so now that the kingdom had been divided and now both north and south had been conquered, the people were left to interpret and say, what does this mean for us? And that's the period of history then where in the Bible we hear about the prophets. And the prophets come to the people, some before the fall, and some during, and some after, but as the teachers to help interpret what was going on. And the prophets also had made promises and said, though we've lost, and though we are divided, and though we are now conquered, God promises that this will not always be our situation. That if at any point we turn in sincerity and we repent, there is a promise of return. And when Ezra opens up, if you still have your Bible open, you can go to Ezra chapter 1. You see the beginning of this. The ruling empire at the time is now the Persian Empire. And in Ezra chapter 1, we read, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Ju Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This is amazing. But Cyrus, king of Persia, was at the time now the most powerful leader. And he just conquered the conquerors. It was the Babylonians who had conquered Judah. And now they had been conquered by Persia. And so here, he comes, and he has all different groups of people that he's now in charge of. And his way of showing goodwill now to all of these various people that he rules is he realizes there's a whole group of them who weren't born here, who aren't from here, who don't speak the language. And as he learns their stories, he didn't only do this for Israel, he did this with other nations, but said to them as a gesture of goodwill, if you want to go back, and we give you resources to go back. We will gladly send you back as a way to now not have all of these different groups to be in conflict with each other and in conflict with him. He's not a believer in the God of Israel. He's not praying to Yahweh, but he learns enough about these people. In Babylon, he sees that so many things have been stolen from their temple in Jerusalem, and so he makes this gesture to them and says, you're allowed to go back, and we're going to send you back with gold and silver, with animals and with resources to start rebuilding. And the author of Ezra Nehemiah says to the people, this is exactly what the prophet Jeremiah said would happen. Jeremiah promised that within 70 years, God would restore us as a people. And so for many of the believers in that day, though they had experienced traumatic consequences of war, they were now starting to begin to experience the rebuilding of what they had lost. 
But the vision of the prophets was greater than simply getting to go back to Jerusalem. The prophet Isaiah gives one of the the most uh, beautiful descriptions of what a vision of restoration looks like. In, In one of the visions in Isaiah 61 that he talks about is basically a society in which traditionally the most vulnerable people would be safe. So he talks about little children being able to play among wild animals and being safe. And he talks about older people being able to live and healthy for a long time. And in most societies, those are still our most vulnerable populations, the very young and the very old. And when Isaiah gives this prophetic vision to the people to say, when God restores us, it's it's not gonna be a partial restoration. But God wants to give us back everything that we lost. Not just a new capital and a new nation, but a new heart and a new spirit. Because before we ever lost those physical things, we lost something spiritual. And this vision is consistently in all the prophets. If you read Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, uh, though they lived in very, very sad times, and they gave people ways to interpret what happened to them, they also eventually developed this stunning vision of what restoration could look like and what God desired for each of his people. And so the first person in the book of Ezra who gets sent back to go is a priest named Zerubbabel. He goes back to Jerusalem and he rebuilds the altar so that people can start making sacrifices in Jerusalem like they used to and he works for a period of time. And then a few decades later, Ezra is sent back, but both of them are priests. And so from the vision of the prophets to now the work of the priests, Zerubbabel goes and reestablishes the altar, and they're able to make sacrifices, which is good, but there's no one there instructing them on what to do every other day of the week. (laughs) What does it look like to live out our faith in all the areas that God has called us to do? And so Ezra, goes and he does that. He becomes a teacher of the law to, to, to teach them what it means to follow God in every area of their lives. Because when you read the first five books of Moses, it's an integrated life that is envisioned. That worship wouldn't be just something they did on the Sabbath day, but that what they did on the Sabbath day would shape them for every other day. And so this work has already been going on now for years before what happens in Nehemiah Uh, that we read takes place. So when Nehemiah now is still no longer, he's not in Jerusalem, he's still in Persia, and he's asking as people are coming back and forth and traveling, and he meets some of them and he says, tell me what's going on. Report back, what's happening in Judah? The report that he gets in verse three, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so there was this initial excitement when Cyrus made the decree and Zerubbabel got to go, the announcement that this is what's been prophesied by Jeremiah, the work is beginning. But Zerubbabel worked for a while and then he experienced opposition and conflict. Ezra then went years later, worked for a while, taught people the law. And after all of that work, Nehemiah gets this update. 
the walls are still broken. The city is still vulnerable. In other words, the vision that the prophets gave us of what restoration would look like is still not there. It still hasn't come to pass in the way that we heard Ezekiel talk about in Isaiah and Jeremiah. In Ezra chapter 3, in the time of Zerubbabel, when they lay the foundations of the temple again, it says all the older people who were there and who remembered what the temple used to be like, they just started weeping. They could already tell as it was being rebuilt that it would be nowhere near as glorious as what they used to have. And so the younger people were all cheering and the older people had a new level of sadness as they realized that this restoration was not going to be everything they wanted it to be. And now the update that Nehemiah gets is, you know, they are still worshiping. The altar's been restored and there is preaching going on but the city is vulnerable and it's insecure. So his domain is not the priesthood. His domain is not to rebuild the temple. His domain is to say, but what do we need to build in addition to that so that all the people who come and travel back and forth have a sense of security and have a sense of safety? So what breaks his heart is this realization that there is some form of restored worship, but how much can you celebrate that they're making a sacrifice on Saturday, but their lives are still at risk on Monday or Tuesday? That wasn't the promise of restoration. And so just like we need restored altars and temples and we need restored teaching of how to live life, we also need the restoration of work in our society that serves all of the needs that we as human beings have. Where do we get food? Where do we get shelter? How do we administer justice? How do we resolve disputes between each other? The goal was not just a restored house of worship in a society that was crumbling, but that a restored house of worship could be the means by which not only the believers could experience encouragement, but that they could then be agents of renewal and change and build up the society around them so that the vulnerable could be safe. So to, to get where Nehemiah's heart is broken and to wonder, is anything gonna change? Is to, if he was in our day and his heart was broken to hear how many people continue to lose their lives in the United States of America from gun violence that seems so senseless and arbitrary. And he might say, don't tell me how many people went to church on Sunday. It's great if the church is packed. It's great if people are reading their Bibles. But are there still so many people losing their lives in senseless acts of rage? Why is that still happening? Why are so many people in Summit County still not getting the medical care that they need and so they're dying prematurely when the resources are only a few miles away? Like this is Nehemiah's burden and he, he's crushed by it to say there are people who have been doing work for a while and he's not criticizing Zerubbabel and he's not criticizing Ezra but he just realizes that's not the wholeness of what God has called us to 
we love and long for the restoration of our own opportunities to worship, but there is unfinished work in Jerusalem. The city gate was not what we think of as a fence that people, uh, you know, just kept you away from your neighbor. The city gate was where business happened, where people exchanged goods, and where if someone had a dispute between someone else, a judge would come at the city gate and make a decision to administer justice. And so when he hears that the gates are still destroyed, the walls are still unfinished, he knows that this is not the fulfillment of God's plan. There is still more work to be done. And the first thing he, that happens to him as a result of that is he is crushed by it. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued in fasting before the God of heaven. That's a challenge for us as believers today. Say, are we comfortable with our opportunities to worship God as we know him and understand him? And heartbroken at all the ways in which God's kingdom is still not realized in this world. That the vulnerable are still vulnerable instead of safe that people who are crying out for justice in so many instances don't receive it, that those who are working so hard in administration and in government to make policy changes get opposition all the time in the good work that they're trying to do. When we start to experience that, it frustrates us. But does it break our hearts? Do we grieve it like Nehemiah to long and pray and fast and mourn that God's kingdom is still not brought into this world like it should. And we are 2,000 years removed from the time of Christ where we believe this prophetic vision was manifested fully by him in his life, in his teaching, in his death, in his resurrection. But the work that he has called us to is still unfinished work. And it's the type of work that if we're going to be committed to it, we have to be committed beyond the immediacy of our own lifetime. I asked Miroslav as a visitor to America, I said, I I can do one touristy trip for you. So do you want to go to New York City, Washington, D.C., or Chicago? They're all reasonable driving distance from Akron. So he picked New York City. So we spent two days, uh, Wednesday through Friday in New York City. And there were certain buildings that we went into as you look at it. He just said, to be committed to do this work, you knew that this building was going to be started and not finished by the time you died. St. Patrick's is one of my favorite buildings to go into on Fifth Avenue just to see the architecture and the ceilings there. And and the level of detail in carved marble to say, wow, now completed, this is a glorious thing to observe, but we can observe it as a completed whole because several people along the way We're committed to do the work, even knowing it would not be finished in their lifetime. And when we see the unfinished work that is happening all around us and the needs that exist, and we say, they're so complicated and they're so big and there seem to be so many people on different sides of the aisle and trying to figure out how to solve it, we could could give up by being overwhelmed by it. And what the book of Nehemiah teaches us is what it means to be faithful. The book of Nehemiah does not end with everything being fixed. 
Ezra doesn't end that way. Nehemiah doesn't end that way. The whole scripture doesn't end that way. But we can learn from these faithful leaders in the past of what it is like to commit ourselves to the work that other people can pick up after us and labor in because it matters. This is how Nehemiah approaches the unfinished work of Jerusalem. And one of them is the ongoing work of prayer. When you learn about Zerubbabel and Ezra, you'd say, well, of course they pray. They're priests. Nehemiah's, if you will, the, the government official. He's the more secular leader. He's just going to get building projects done. He's going to organize labor. He's going to make sure people get paid. He's going to be the engineer who figures out how to rebuild the wall. And actually, Nehemiah's going to do all those things. He's going to do all the kinds of things that, as a nation, we celebrate in this Labor Day holiday. The good work that is required for all of us to have quality of life here on this earth. But Nehemiah knows that even that work is dependent upon prayer. Even that physical labor is only supported by the spiritual vitality given by the maker of heaven and earth. And so before he does anything, before he organizes a meeting, before he gets people involved in the labor, he models for us what it's like to pray. And I just bring your attention to verse 5. In this prayer, he says, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So when he hears the news of what's going on, one, he owns his own part of the story. He owns his father's part in that story. He weeps over that. He's not just angry at the enemies and what they did to us, but he knows that Israel lost its way long before anyone attacked them. They had lost their relationship with the Lord. They had lost their commitment to him. But in verse five, when he combines this way of talking about God in prayer, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. What he's doing is he's miles and miles away from home. The report that he got back from home is not good. But he looks up to God and says, God, I know you're here with me now and you're there because you're the God of heaven. You're the God who's over it all. And this world is too much for me. It's too much for my people. This work is going to have to take place long after we're gone. But I'm coming to you because I do believe you are the Lord God of heaven. You know what's going on in all these places. You see all these needs. You have not given up on bringing about the vision of the prophets into this world. And so I need your help. Because if I don't have your help, I'm going to quit. I'm going to give up. I am not going to labor in the way that the labor needs to happen. So then I, uh, I found this quote from Elizabeth Elliot, and it's on the back of your handout if you have one from you. She said, one does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be done in a lifetime. It's a powerful statement. 
those of us who know the Lord, the God of heaven, and want to say to him, we want to give you our lives to do whatever it is you called us to do. That's not just a decision we make in a moment. It is a decision that we continue to affirm in the course of our lives and say, God, in whatever piece I play in the grand story, help me to be faithful to the work that you've called me to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our ability to hear Nehemiah's prayer, the way his own heart was burdened at the suffering of his people. His own burden in seeing your grand vision for what a healthy society looks like and hearing updates that just crushed his spirit to know that so many were still suffering, so many were still struggling to experience justice. So many were still vulnerable rather than safe and secure. And Father, I do pray that you would help us to have his same heart, to not be content with private acts of worship or our own times together in freedom to read our scripture. But just as much to care about the work that is going on around us, the health of those around us, the security of those around us. That as a nation on this weekend, as we celebrate all the work that is required to love one another, to care for one another, to bring about a healthy quality of life, I thank you for every person in this room, for every teacher and mother and father and doctor and lawyer and accountant, every coach and teacher, everyone who works for our government or in the private sector, everyone who volunteers their time at home. Father, help us in the work that you have called all of us to do, to be faithful, to see it as our opportunity to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.